This is the American Alpine Club's Legacy Series, a tribute to the visionary climbers who made the sport what it is today, and a commitment to securing their legacies. This is our first podcast episode in the series, featuring legendary alpinist Steve House and me, your host, Jim Aikman. So, I'm probably going to have to take a few deep breaths during this story. It was kind of loose, but it wasn't just total choss. Um, it was sort of solace. I couldn't just like swing a tool into the dirt kind of a thing. And that's the last thing I kind of remember from that. I was suddenly falling. The name Steve House is synonymous with alpine climbing. For the last 30 years, he's carved his own path, stringing together a career of meaningful climbs all over the world. He's an author, a guide, a mentor, an ambassador, a husband and father, and champion of the alpine style of climbing, moving fast and staying light to spend the minimum amount of time in the path of objective hazards. Now retired, Steve also had a long career. He's survived a game that has not been so kind to many others. And he's survived because of his principles. Hard-won knowledge about the best ways to stay alive in the mountains and to reach their summits every now and then. When I was a kid growing up in Eastern Oregon, it was a, it was a really great place to grow up actually. We, we just did outside stuff all the time of all sorts. So we, we rock climbed, but we also went fishing and backpacking and like skiing. And if it was outside, we did it. And we actually ended up doing quite a bit of climbing in those years when I was like 15, 16. That was also for context, it was like 1984 to 1986. So that was the time when Smith Rock particularly was exploding in terms of climbing, uh, you had Alan Watts starting to r repel bull uh, rock climbs. Um, when I, the first mount, proper mountain I ever climbed was Mount Hood, and I was about 11 years old. I uh, went to, uh, I was, so I was either fifth or sixth grade, went to school. After school, I had a baseball game. After the baseball game, we drove to Hood River. We stopped in Hood River. We had like a burger and fries. We drove to Timberline. And it was about midnight and we just started climbing. And we got to the summit at dawn. And it was my, myself, my father, another father that I knew from scouts and his son, uh, this guy Scott, who was about a year older. I was completely exhausted. And on the way down, we got down past the crater and on the kind of the, just the big snow slope above the, uh, the Palmer lift, um, I actually fell and like did this big like slide for life, my, my backpack opened up and all my gear like flew out everywhere. Um, and, uh, and I hated it. <laughs> and I was like, dad, I'm never climbing another mountain. That was horrible. Of course, Steve did climb another mountain and another and another. In fact, I could spend all day on here detailing the incredible climbing career that Steve House went on to have from his humble beginnings in rural Oregon, which is truly one of a kind from the Canadian Rockies to the Karakoram. But one story in particular from Steve's illustrious resume brought him the closest to the brink 
And it wasn't one of his summits. It was one of his falls. February 25th, uh, 2010. And I was uh, climbing in the Canadian Rockies with Bruce Miller. And I, I think it's worth noting I had a permit for K2 that summer. And I was in about my 10th year of basically training full-time, like, like treating myself and my climbing as a professional athlete is the way I looked at it. Um, I, I was able to live from climbing as a professional climber, not really have any other jobs at that time or for that period and working with my coach, Scott Johnston. And so I was in a, it was essentially a training block uh, to go to Canada and climb for climb as much and as hard as I could for three weeks. And uh, I was doing that whole thing with uh, that whole trip with Bruce. So we had just actually arrived. It was the beginning of our trip and it was like day three or something and, and a storm was forecast. But it had been pretty good weather, so conditions for alpine climbing were reasonably good. A storm was forecast, but it was a couple of days away. So we thought, well, what could we, could we is there an alpine, like a two-day alpine route we could go do? So <clears throat> long story short, I had this unofficial project, which I can talk about now because it's a long time ago and I don't put any stock in these things anymore, to, I had a list of all the north faces in the, north and east faces in the Canadian Rockies, because that's how the things are oriented up there, that I wanted to put a new route up on. And there was around 12 of them. And the north face of, um, of uh, Mount Temple was one. And there's a pretty obvious, to anyone who thinks about these things, uh, direct, hard, or sh probably the hardest line up that face that has not been climbed even to this day. And I told Bruce about it. I was like, hey, let's go give this a shot. It's at least a recon. We're using our time. We're going climbing. We climbed a few pitches of this theoretical new route, and the rock was just horribly bad. I think we, we either climbed two or three pitches. We bailed off of that to the Greenwood Jones. We thought, okay, well, this route, it's only at that time been, only been climbed in winter once, but it was relatively easy, and we thought we could bivy there and finish it the next day. So we went over, climbed part of the Greenwood Jones, got to a good bivy, spent the night, very comfortable bivy. The next uh, morning, we climbed, uh, Bruce climbed a couple of pitches. It was his block. And uh, then it was my block. I think he climbed two pitches, and then I took over. And we weren't planning on climbing this route, so we didn't have a topo. We were on the route. I've, it was confirmed for me later. And I was leading a pitch. I was near the end of the pitch in terms of I'd, I'd, I'd actually probably climbed past a pretty logical blaze spot was looking to sort of extend the pitch because I want, we were just trying to make time, so I was trying to make the pitches as long as I could reasonably. And um, I had, I very clearly remember this, and this is, this is gonna be relevant to the rest of the story here in a second, but there was a little edge and there was a pretty steep, you know, roughly vertical sort of head wall of, of limestone that kind of faced a little bit to the left and there was a, a small, crack right in the flat part of this face of limestone and I could see that you know that was like 15 20 feet of climbing and then it 
would kick over and there may be another ledge. The rock was horrible. Right there, um, I was able to place a really good nut in good rock. I mean, the, the rock wasn't, I should say this, by normal standards, the rock was horrible. By Canadian Rocky standards, it was passable. I was like, okay, that's where I got to climb. It's not, you know. But there was good rock where I was able to put, a, it was a, I remember the size nut. It was about, you know, about a, you know, three quarter or five eighths inch nut in, in really good solid limestone facing a little left. I clipped that off while well, I was just standing on the ledge and then I started up this crack. <clears throat> and it was strenuous enough I didn't really want to like dilly-dally. You know, I was placing cams in this kind of rotten limestone. Didn't really want to hang out a long time so I was, I was shoving them in there. And I kind of got to the point where it, where it kicked over and unfortunately, it kind of kicked over, like, as it often does in the Canadian Rockies, like, not flat, like, it was sort of like a 45-degree angle. So I'm probably going to have to take a few deep breaths during this story. So um, I was there with that kind of kicked over spot, kind of somewhere around mid-body level, and I was clearing the snow, and I was looking for a way to kind of mantle or get up on this thing. Um, it was kind of loose, but it wasn't just total choss. Um, it was sort of solid. So I couldn't just like swing a tool into the dirt kind of a thing. Um, and that's the last thing I kind of remember from that. I was suddenly falling. I don't really know why. My, maybe a foothold broke, maybe a foot popped, maybe I was shifting my weight around. I wasn't like in the middle of the crux. My tools weren't really on or in anything. Um, because I had my hips kind of like over the crest, you know, my weight was really comfortably on my feet and I was just kind of moving snow and looking for a crack, looking for a place to put some gear or, or a way to kind of mantle up onto this little awkward spot. So I, can, I fell for a long time. I have like a memory of the experience of falling. It was long enough. And it was uh, about a hundred, um, yeah, it was about between 80 and 100 feet of falling. Um, that happened for a couple of reasons. One, uh, all the gear that I had placed in that crack came out. The nut that I had placed apparently is still there. A friend of mine went up there and tried to get it out for me and he said he can't. It's like welded. So it's part of the mountain now, which is, which is fine, so it, as it should be. Um, and then also the, the pitch had wandered a little bit, so there was slack and probably there were some directionals and maybe some, who knows, maybe some other pieces in the system pulled. I don't really know, it doesn't really matter. Um, the good thing is that I fell, so the route kind of follows a buttress, so I sort of fell like to the, to the left, the looker's left of the buttress. And it was really steep, it's really steep there, so I didn't hit anything on the way down. My, my crampons hit something, like, um, because as I was like falling down the rock, 
and that flipped me upside down. So I was falling literally like fully upside down with my feet above my head, but kind of my shoulders and back kind of leading. But what happened was, um, as I'm falling, I didn't hit the ground. I didn't hit the, so Bruce was on a belay ledge, like a fairly comfortable belay ledge, like two, three feet wide, like not one you would unrope on and like play ping pong or anything, but you know, like a place to stand. And so I didn't hit that. Um, I slammed back into the wall. So when the rope eventually did come tight, I like, I slammed my whole right side of my body into the wall. And um, that was the, the, I will say there was one point during the fall with something, I, I did slow down significantly, like a piece like pop, popped out, you know, like I did, I did decelerate quite a bit, which probably ultimately helped because it, slowed, it did slow me down. I slammed back into the rock and I had a bunch of, uh, that was where my rack was. Um, you know, when I'm alpine climbing, I rack on a sling. Uh, and I had, for some reason, because of just trying to go fast, I had put the rack over my right shoulder, which I usually don't do. I usually, you know, as climbers, we all relate to these things, right? You're like, ah, that's not, if I had only done it the way I normally do it, put it over my left shoulder, the gear wouldn't have been there. But the cams broke a bunch of bones, is what happened. That was part of, a big part of the problem. When I hit the rock wall, I hit hard enough that I broke a lot of stuff and a lot of injuries. I broke my pelvis in two places. I had, um, I had t I have, I have these two ribs were for about a four inch section. They were just pulverized, like just little pieces. They're still pulverized and it hurts right now. It hurts every day, it hurts all the time. Um, I had a bunch of other rib fractures. I had like, all kinds of little fractures on my spinal cord. Like, um, so then what happened was I kind of yelled, Bruce was like, you know, he's yelling and I'm yelling, I don't really remember any of that. Uh, but I had him lower me to the ledge. And I, I don't think it was that far. I think it was just a few feet, three feet, six feet, 10 feet, I don't know. Bruce might know. And um, I, got on my belly and I was trying to crawl to Bruce, but my right leg just didn't work, which was the weirdest feeling. But also was obviously, I was like, oh, my right leg doesn't like respond. But my left leg did. And so I was able to kind of like kick my front points into the dirt or whatever was on the ledge. And my arms were just like in this kind of protection fetal position and they wouldn't move really either. And I was kind of pushed myself forward along the ledge to get over to Bruce, because I, I don't know, it's just my instinct to get to Bruce. And uh, there was, a f I think I moved like a few body lengths, two, three body lengths, I don't really know. And then I couldn't move anymore. Then it was just like the pain was just overwhelming. The pain overwhelmed the adrenaline. Um, the problem was that when I broke the ribs with the um, cams, those 
broken ribs went into my internal organs. So I had multiple, I had all kinds of internal injuries, which I didn't know what they were, of course, and it doesn't really matter. But for sure, I had a lacerated spleen, I had a lacerated liver, um, I had uh, some damage to the right kidney, but most critically for, in terms of the timing was I, I had a lot of injuries to my right lung, multiple holes in my right lung. That's one of the few alpine climbs in the Canadian Rockies where there's cell service. And we had a flip phone. And uh, we brought it for emergencies. We didn't bring it for like any other reason. We had it off in the pack, as I recall. And um, uh, Bruce called, I don't know who he called. He called, he, he, I don't know if he dialed 911 or or if he had the park warden's number programmed, or I don't know who he called, but he um, ultimately got the, you know, the rangers, the park wardens uh, for Banff National Park in motion. It took him about two hours to get on scene, which is amazingly fast, considering this almost never happens. I can remember these two hours really clearly. I was, uh, I kind of self-diagnosed what was going on. It's not that complicated, like, you know, mostly because I realized my, my, I, re I realized my breath was getting shorter and shorter because my chest cavity was filling up with blood. So I knew I had a hemoneumothorax and I knew there were, wasn't really a whole hell of a lot I could do about it. Um, but, what I mostly remember is I had to like, I knew that the best thing I could do was be calm. Because the more excited I was, the higher my blood pressure would be, and the more, the faster I would bleed into my chest cavity and my lungs would collapse and I would die. But I remember <laughs> being remarkably calm, um, even like surprising to the point where I was like, man, I can't believe I can be this calm because I knew that if those guys didn't get me off before my lungs were overwhelmed by the, by the fluid, by the blood filling my chest cavity, that I would be dead. And that was gonna take a matter of hours. It wasn't gonna be a matter of minutes, but it was gonna be a matter of hours. But I had this really clear kind of, just kind of, thought process, I wouldn't call it a discussion, where I was like, okay, if you die today, how are you feeling about your life? You know, what's your scorecard kind of a thing? Like, what did you do well? What didn't you do? What do you wish you'd done better? Um, who do you wish you could tell you were sorry? Like, you know, those kinds of things. We all had that stuff. But obviously when you're gonna die sometime in the next one to four hours, becomes a little more immediate. And I thought, you know, I never had a family. I wish I'd had a family. That was really vivid for me. Um, another thing was that I didn't feel like I had done anything for, like, for others. And I mean, it, it's t to kind of, excuse myself like I had my focus had been climbing and I tried to be my MO my mission statement was to be the best climber I could be and so everything 
was subservient to that mission statement. And you know, if you want to be the best at something, that's kind of how it has to be. It's, there's no like balance in life if you're trying to be the best. It's, it's all in. And so I uh, had taken that to a, a kind of, some would say an extreme, but for me, a logical conclusion. And that had meant, for example, no family. That had meant like, for example, no relationships that I really truly cared about because I wanted to be able to ditch them at any time or if I wanted to go climbing instead. All these kinds of things came up. And uh, one of them was I had never done anything. I didn't do things for other people. Like I didn't help other people. Like, so while, but while on the ledge, like I had all of these, honestly, super profound realizations that I, I could have had without the accident, but I wasn't either brave enough or disciplined enough to have that honest of a conversation with myself. But death forced it. And that was about two hours. By now I was super cold and my breath was really, really shallow. Like I was only, I only had like, really like a top couple of centimeters of lung left. And I didn't know that exactly, uh, but I could tell like my breaths were really, really small and shallow, like, and, and fast. Like I was like, <laughs> I was like, like a little, like one of those little dogs. Um, and the helicopter had come in during this time. And as they have to do, they have to kind of do a flyby, check the winds, look around. They had to fly back down and there's a frozen lake down there where they had like rigged a, a rescuer under a short haul line. And then they'd come back and this all seemed to be taking forever because I'm like, I don't got my, I, it's like minutes now. And I uh, remember when they came in and I could tell what, you know, obviously I could hear and I could, I couldn't see because I was face down in the snow and like just in this kind of fetal position and I couldn't, I couldn't move. But I could see my harness and I remember Seeing it, like feeling Grant come in, kind of land, I could feel his presence and there's all this noise. And I could see him reach in under me and clip a locking carabiner to my belay loop and lock it. I was feeling pretty bad. I was feeling worse and worse and worse. And it was getting, it seemed to be getting faster. Like my condition felt like it was getting worse, faster. So, um, more or less the next thing that happened is uh, he said something into the radio and I wasn't really listening. And then the helicopter lifted us off. And when that happened, I mean, that is by far the most pain I hope I will ever experience in my life because it still makes me kind of like twitch. I mean, my world, the whole, my, like I almost, like I said, I almost lost consciousness. I, the black just kind of came in from both sides of my vision. And I just, I was like fighting really hard not to like pass out um, because I didn't know if I was ever gonna open my eyes again. And it just got really narrow for a while. And they flew us down. And now I'm like, they land us on this frozen lake. And, and I'm like, feeling really desperate. Like I can't really talk and I can't get enough air to make words anymore. 
and they repackaged me in like a litter and then they put me in the thing part of the in the helicopter and then they decide because I'm so marginal because there's a there's an ambulance with a paramedic sitting in Lake Louise which is like five six air miles away really close and then they get me in the ambulance with a paramedic and then um, and then he gets it he tries to they just they just go f like full lights and sirens towards the ER and Banff but um, for some reason and I don't know why he never gets a chest tube in but he, he basically like intubating me and he putting like um, getting an IV in my arm getting pain meds on board and I and he kind of relaxes me and calms me and, I, and, and he puts me out yeah I mean he estimated I had about 20 minutes or less to live. Um, I wake up some not too long later. In I'm in the ER in Banff. I'm totally naked. I'm freezing cold. There's like all these people. Like I, I just wake up and like there's like all these people and there's like like it's just like on the TV show, right? Like there's like they're like yelling and running around or whatever. And somebody sees me and they're like, he's awake. And then the next thing I, I know, like I'm out again. Like they must have given me more medicine. And then, uh, and then they bring me out of that. They put a chest tube in. That's when they were apparently, um, and I have the scars, but they tried to get in and they, they must have hit a rib or something. So it took them a couple of tries to uh, get through, get between the ribs to get a chest tube in and um, do the, the life-saving medical procedures that they did, whatever they were. I'm honestly not really that sure. So um, very, very grateful and lucky to be here. I was 39 years old at that moment. And uh, it was, uh, you know, if it had gone that way, you know, it would have, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't do anything about it. And I don't regret how I lived my, my life at that point. But I'm, I'm glad I had the opportunity for a second chapter and to be able to do some of the things that I realized I wanted to do. Uh, and honestly, it's like, I think about this experience literally every day, if not multiple times a day for multiple reasons. One is um, I still have more or less to varying degrees somewhat constant pain in my ribs from um, from these fractures um, and then the other thing is like you know I have two beautiful little boys now and uh, but from my perspective it's it's easy to, <laughs> to imagine a world without them because that world was almost the world that happened um, and so I, I, it comes up for me all the time. After Steve's accident, he did continue his climbing career, heading to Makalu in the Himalaya less than a year later. But he also found ways to give back to the climbing community, to provide for others in a way that he felt he hadn't prior to that fateful day on Mount Temple. He wrote multiple training books and started the nonprofit Alpine Mentors, which has more than 200 athletes being coached all over the world, and began a new relationship with his own climbing. We interviewed Steve at his home in Ridgeway, Colorado back in 2019, but he's since moved with his family to Austria, 
where his wife is from, and retired as a professional climber, though he still gets up in the vertical world from time to time. Thanks for joining us on this special episode of the Legacy Series, and stay tuned for more content from the American Alpine Club. This interview was conducted by Legacy Series co-founder Jim McCarthy and captured by myself, Jim Aikman. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.